Consequence Podcast Network. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Utterstall. And I'm Mike Snoonian. And we are back with a new month and a new mental health topic. So May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Hooray! <laughs> and that is obviously something we all care very deeply about because that's why we do this podcast. <laughs> uh, so, so this month we are going to be talking about maybe one of the most misunderstood and stigmatized elements of mental health. We're going to talk about residential treatment. And to kick it off, we are talking about we are talking about Martin Scorsese's dip into the horror genre, Shutter Island. Yay! Take a take a dip in the cold waters around Shutter Island. (laughs) (laughs) Which side note? I now will forever spell Shutter with D. I know instead of T. It's so hard not to spell it that way. That's why I couldn't find this. uh, I wanted to listen to the soundtrack, (laughs) and I'm like going through my Sonos app, and I'm like why isn't it on here? And I'm like, that's why I was misspelling it. Great. I blame you, Shudder, but if you want to sponsor us. Just still um, sponsor us. We'll we'll rename it Shudder Island. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so we're going to talk about Shutter Island today, but before we do, we're going to give a brief synopsis of the movie in case you haven't seen it or it's been a while. So here is your spoiler alert, and I tried to do it in a Boston accent, but that was a alert. terrible Boston accent. Spoiler. <laughs> uh, you awful. have a Shutter Island before you. I'm we're so sorry. Mike is also from, from Boston. Boston. <laughs> yeah. So oh, that's right. just as a reminder, <laughs> Jen is from the Deep South, and, that's and Laura from is from Chicago. So, and I'm the one getting annihilated oh, for my regionals. I know. My region's <laughs> like, accents. No room to, t- well, to talk about At some about point, accents. there will be a movie set in the South. And at some point, there will be, when we get to Candyman. We did Candyman already. We already did. We didn't even. Yeah. And no uh, one said shit. No one said shit. You can, <laughs> this is, I've been roasted for my accent so many times. Because apparently, I have a Chicago accent. Yeah. It's when I say Chicago mm-hmm. accent is mm-hmm. the most, like, oh, it yeah. comes out of my my mouth. This, uh, this is already a Wicked Pissa episode right now. <laughs> There we go. Mike is going to be our um, Boston accent correspondent yeah. for this episode. Uh, so coming in from Boston. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. How do you say this? Yes. Uh, I think yeah. Ben Kingsley has the most Boston accent of everybody <laughs> in this movie. When Ben when Ben Kingsley rolls up in this film, uh, every time a new character appears on screen in this movie, I'm like, ah, oh, shit, it's that guy. Yep. Like, I know. Ah, oh, shit. That was fun. <laughs> so, yeah. I I think huh? Christopher Merloni somewhere has like a portrait of Elias Coteus in his. Mm. It's like the re- portrait of Dorian Gray, except everything gets put on Elias Coteus. They look <laughs> so much alike, except that Elias is a much dirtier version of Christopher Merloni. Yes. Yeah. yes. I had a big crush on him from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles days. Yes. So. He's also one of those actors who just 
turns up in everything, yep. and you're like, oh, yep. and I'm like, there he is. Yeah, yep. makes everything better. Mm-hmm. He does. But, uh, um, I will say his scar is very triggering to me. I do not mm. like that. It's a <laughs> a very intense scar. He was not kidding when he said he has a big no. scar across his face. It's staples. Yeah, it's full blown staples. Oh. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Yep. I'm going to read this now, and I'm going to really try not to do it in that accent the entire time. Please don't. We shall all clear our minds. I'm taking a quick look in here. Is there the word anagram anywhere in this? Because I don't no, see it. No, we did not leave the word. We, I, we, we, I think we left out the part about the anagram. Because I why wanted you... to sing the anagram, anagram, does whatever an Anna can. Mm. And oh, I don't know that this, song, but I like it. It's the theme. And it's set to the like theme Bat- of Spider-Man. Spider-Man, yeah, not Batman. Backwards, forwards, yeah. and anagram. This is going to be a seven-hour episode. We've all been hit with, <laughs> we've been all been taking nitrous oxide heavily before. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, my, my, uh, oh, what the fuck, never mind. I was going to say that, the, oh, yeah, my narcoleptics are wearing off. Excellent. Mm. Okay. Well, buckle do- up, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's 1954. And U.S. Marshal Teddy Daniels isn't doing so hot. He's, (laughs) oh boy, he's seasick on a ferry ride he's sharing with his new partner, Chuck All. It really sounds like chuckle when you say it (laughs) out loud. Mm -hmm. It's almost like it's not real. Not like a real name. Okay. They're headed to a mental hospital for the criminally insane on an Alcatraz-esque rock called Shutter Island ostensibly to find an escaped patient named Rachel Solando. And there's a storm of ruin. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Okay. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm making, and this is really, it's going to be hard to get through this. Oh, calm down. Okay. Breathe, breathe. After talking, the marshals are led to an extremely ominous hospital surrounded by electrified fences and shackled inmates, where they're forced to surrender their firearms. We learn that Teddy's wife, Dolores, died in an apartment arson. Although Teddy is investigating Rachel's disappearance, he's also covertly looking for an arsonist named Andrew Lytus, who lit the match and may or may not be secretly imprisoned on the island. Next, we meet Dr. Cowley, the bow-tied head psychiatrist, who pontificates about his progressive methodologies and against treatments like lobotomy, which he views as a last resort. As the marshals begin their investigation, we learn that Rachel was a patient who killed her children, and to avoid admitting that to herself, retreated into a delusional and elaborate fantasy world. Hmm. Will this be significant later? Who can Hmm. say? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Teddy has dreams and flashbacks of earlier years, including his time as a soldier at the liberation of Dachau and the ghost of a little girl who haunts him, asking why he didn't save her. Because she was a bad kid. She fucking <gasps> sucked. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It's actually very sad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he also has visions of his wife, Dolores, often soaked, sometimes bleeding from her stomach, sometimes collapsing into pillars of ash. She warns him not to go to the lighthouse. Not to be confused with The Lighthouse 2019, directed by Robert Eggers. Although he probably doesn't want to walk into that movie either. (laughs) That would also go poorly for him. Okay. As the power goes out during the storm, Teddy finds himself in Sea Ward, where the most dangerous prisoners are held. He attacks one in a stairwell and interrogates another, a man he knows from the outside world, who tipped him off about all the dastardly experiments taking place on the island. 
and is now paying the price. Or is he? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just really, really slap happy right now. Okay. Teddy has an undeniable connection to the island, but he can't figure out what it is. After getting separated from Truck, Teddy meets a mysterious second Rachel hiding in a cave among the cliffs. She informs him she's actually a psychiatrist at the facility and was forced into hiding after she asked too many questions. She tells him all about the sinister lighthouse, where Dr. Collie and company are experimenting with psychosurgery to create zombie-like super assassins. This is all very post-war. Okay. The next day, Teddy returns to the hospital. He's looking for Chuck, who's gone missing. Dr. Collie tells him he has no partner and that he arrived on the island alone. Roro. Okay. <laughs> After blowing up a car and injuring some officers and doctors, Teddy Teddy <laughs> I just think it's funny, like, blew up a car. Yeah, yeah. just, yep. you know. That's part he, of it. Teddily enough. He, okay. <laughs> After he does all this, Teddy finally makes it to the lighthouse, where he's convinced they're keeping Chuck prisoner. There he finds Dr. Collie and Chuck, but it turns out he's no Chuck all at all. <sighs> he, he's actually Dr. Sheehan, his primary doctor, and he's been a patient at Shutter Island for two years. My freak! Oh, oh you confirm. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Sheehan is indeed easy on the eyes, like yes, one he patient is. says. He is yes. easy on the eyes. He's Mark Ruffalo, and he's very handsome. Yes. Uh, he's just got such a kind face. And he's mm -hmm. a Bernie supporter. Love him. Mm -hmm. Okay. He's a what? <laughs> he's a Bernie supporter. <laughs> I thought you said he's a furry supporter. I'm like, I don't I mean, know that. I mean, he might be. Who knows? Be. I'm not going to take that away from him. Yeah. Uh, there's okay. some overlap in those communities yeah I imagine. There, there is there's a lot of socialist uh, furries okay moving on <laughs> the doctors reveal to air quotes teddy that is that his name is andrew Lytus, and this whole scenario is a delusion he created to avoid admitting a devastating truth to himself his wife dolores had suffered from an untreated mental illness it was she who burned down the apartment building she tried to tell Andrew slash Teddy that she needed help, but he wouldn't listen and didn't do anything about it. We see in a flashback that he returned home one day to find out that she killed their three children, drowning them in the lake. She asks Andrew to kill her, and he does, shooting her in the stomach. Riddled with guilt and trauma, as one doctor in the movie says, so similar to the German word for dream, Traum, Andrew snapped in the wake of these devastating events. The doctors tell him it's essential that he admits all of this because the board has decided that unless he gets better, they'll have no choice but to lobotomize him so that he can't hurt anyone anymore. It seems to work with Andrew admitting reality. Until the next morning, when Andrew asks Chuck what the next move should be. He is reset to acting like a field marshal and thinking that Chuck is his partner. The breakthrough is over. Or is it? As he walks off to get lobotomized, Andrew asks Dr. Sheehan a question. Is it worse to live as a monster or to die as a good man? Perhaps he's aware of more than he's letting on, but the ice pick glints in the sunlight and the credits roll. Aww. Shutter Island. I felt the need for some extreme metal. I think I, br I brought it there. I don't know why. <laughs> I was trying to go for the dramatic score, but it came out as like chug, oh, yeah. chug a chug a guitars. Well, 
Martin Scorsese <laughs> is known for his soundtracks <laughs> filled with of new metal. Death metal. That's or right, new yeah. metal at that also. It's like, a big fan. It's like, it's like do I Wake do me up inside. Rolling Stones or Corn? I think we're going with Corn for this one. It's Evanescence all day. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I can't wake up. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Save me. I mean, it would be thematically Save appropriate. Me from the shadows Martin. on this island. <laughs> Martin Scorsese has secretly funded Fred Durst's whole career. I mean, look, I don't have access to his bank account, so it mm. could be true. <laughs> I feel like there's overlap. It's well known that Martin Scorsese is is in it for the nookie. I was going to say he did, oh, yeah. he did it nookie. all for the nookie. What? Yeah. The what? He's been sipping on the some nookie. hot dog flavored The water. what? <laughs> the nookie. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'll keep going. <laughs> Make it stop. Make it stop. <laughs> Good God. What is Again, this will be all I'm sorry, everyone. our episode. <laughs> 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 all right. So now let's do a feelings check. And I think we are all feeling slap happy. Um, this is where we describe our first encounter with Shutter Island and how it makes us feel when we watch it. And we think it's really important to practice naming our feelings, which sounds like an easy thing to do. But my opinion, Shutter Island kind of shows it can be a lot harder than it seems. Um, so, Mike, would you care to begin? Yeah. So I was first familiar with this um, as the with a novel from Dennis Lehane which the movie uh, really strictly adheres to. I had read the novel upon its release in 2003. I had just started to read Lehane's, uh, you know, crime work. His work was definitely like comfort food for me at a really mm-hmm. downtime in my life. Like I had moved away from Boston for a job that I hated. And this, a lot of his stuff just reminded me of home. So it was kind of very comfortable to read it. I was super excited for Scorsese, who's one of my favorite filmmakers and just a goddamn national treasure as far as i'm concerned to do something like akin to a genre film and i remember like seeing this opening night uh, on a date with my wife and then absolutely like adoring this movie it's just like it's so pulpy Mm -hmm. i think if you were to give this to a lesser filmmaker it would be a very difficult story to adapt because i think they would just kind of really lean too far on the noirish and horror elements to the point of ridiculousness and then mm-hmm. they would be unable to kind of rein in the story when it needs to be in kind of where the story in the third act i think becomes very humanized they would have a difficult time doing that a lesser filmmaker would scorsese very much in this movie like he's leaning into his inspirations like he's talked about the zombie films of val luton in the 30s and 40s as well as like a number of hitchcock films i think he specifically name checked laura is one, and you see that where very early on he sets up things that are going to become important later on, um, such as like, oh, the old um, lighthouse, like, don't go in there, it's all walled off, like, you know that that's going to factor in heavily later on, but he just kind of gives you these teases. The key to this movie is really its editing. It's edited and this, it, it just lets you know that something is off with Teddy, and if you know Scorsese, you know how tight the editing is in all his movies. And yet when you watch this, like there's like frames that are out of sync. They very deliberately will cut and DiCaprio will be posed in a different mannerism. Um, the lip syncing is not always congruent. So it's just, it lets you know that something is definitely amiss when you watch this here without overly tipping its hand. It looks incredible. It was shot mostly in Massachusetts throughout. Like it's actually was shot probably within... 30 minutes of where i live i can actually tour some of these areas 
Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah, it's very, which is really neat. Mm-hmm. And the casting is just, I mean, like, really, mm-hmm. this kind of, kind of, like, B-movie, because this is really what it is. It's a B-movie. Mm-hmm. It doesn't yeah. usually get this level of casting between DiCaprio, Ruffalo, Max von Sydow, Sir Ben Kingsley, Patricia Clarkson, but even just, like, your bit players. Like, you get John Carroll Lynch. Mm-hmm. You get... Ted Levine as the warden, who's mm-hmm. absolutely like chilling in that role. Mm-hmm. Um, Emily Mortimer, mm-hmm. just a lot to love. Is it Lester Scorsese? Of course, like it absolutely is. But even Lester Scorsese is just to me, just Chef's kiss, just wonderful. Mm-hmm. Laura, what about you? Because yeah. you just watched this for the first time today, right? Yeah, today I had never seen it before. Mm. It was I don't know how I I didn't I hadn't seen it. It was just one of those that I never got around to. I don't know if I had any preconceived notions of it, other than I knew it contained some kind of twist, and it was known for that. But I really didn't know anything beyond that, um, and that it was Martin Scorsese and Leo DiCaprio. I do agree with everything Mike said, more or less. Um, I mean, it's. I'll just say I went through a lot of reactions while watching it. It kind of went on a journey where it's, you know, it starts off. It's so dramatic and so mm-hmm. indulgent with that score and like a pro and the, and the, the camera movements, which are, you know, a lot of like sweeping shots and, and, you know, zooming in and, and moving left to right and panning. And it, it just, it really like comes out of the gates hot, you know? <laughs> and, and I was watching it kind of like, it starts off and you're like, oh, this is silly. And then by the end of it, you're like, oh, this is silly. <laughs> you yeah. know, and, mm. and it's it ends up being uh, sort of catching you off guard with that last act of emotional realism, I guess, you know, um, mm-hmm. it, it's or just he- very humanizing elements to it. So, you know, it's just that it's so indulgent and pulpy and dramatic. And I guess at first I was not sure. But by the end of it, I'm like, no, that's great. That's what makes this so fun. And like Mike just said, you you see them really go for it for this kind of B movie uh, noir pulpy nonsense but with this level of cast and production value and cinematography and everything it's really kind of a joy to watch it is kind of structured like a video game where you collect clues and it all leads to the final mm-hmm. cut scenes which is just i think more of the b-movie elements to it but like my brain goes to like video games now i, I think um <laughs> you know there, there's some elements in there that you know just feel that way to me i'm not a huge fan in general of those kind of like mind fuck plot twists and I did mm-hmm. find this one pretty predictable. I don't know. I was a little primed to know that there was a twist. And I think it kind of, you know, from the first moment you see Michelle Williams on screen, I was like, oh, he killed his wife. And this is all like his delusion or something. But I do think it actually works as a conceptual gesture about mental illness and trauma, which is why I'm like, again, it, I felt like I went through a total like tonal shift in my, it within myself over the course of this movie and that's really pretty fun you know I, I think mm-hmm. I you know as somebody who's seen a lot of movies I tend to be a little cynical but I ended up really enjoying it I found the scene with Dolores and the children very moving I found what it was it had to say about mental health and mental illness pretty moving and I thought it was a really solid mid-century period thriller uh, on mm-hmm. top of everything because you know with the production design so I ended up really really liking it and I think Scorsese oh, as a filmmaker I was just talking to my friend Ben about this before we recorded he his whole thing is like men who are unwilling to accept what is going on with their circumstances mm-hmm. and I think that the, he takes that and applies it to like Mike said a B-movie template and it works really really well so it's it's a yeah. good one. 
Well, that's my the thing that really stood out to me on this rewatch um, was men in therapy, which I've talked a little bit about before. But that is like if I feel like I have one mission in my life, it's to kind of normalize men going to therapy, you know, and I, I still am kind of wrapping my brain around what I think this movie is saying about that. And I don't think it's really necessarily intending to make as deep of a comment on that as I kind of want it to. But it is a really I feel like it's a portrayal that I could really sink my teeth into and like dig in and get a lot out of. I may have already pitched something about it just today because I was like, ooh, <laughs> men of violence. I've got to write about that because mm-hmm. that's 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 like the shit that I am like really geek out about like digging into. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the first time I watched this. I probably went to see it in the theaters because this is like gen bait for me to go see it in a movie theater. I and I don't remember how I felt about it, although I do know that I liked it enough to want to read the book for my book club. This was a book club that I was in. I call, I think of it as my evil book club <laughs> because uh, I'm not still in it. I was in this book club at a really, really bad, dark time in my life. And these people, I don't think we're very good friends. So I have a lot of kind of stress attached to that book club. But this was uh, one of the bright spots because I was like, oh, yeah, this will be fun. And we'll get to read this book. They didn't like it nearly as much as I did because they were just not not the right people for me to really be friends with. Mm-hmm. Anyways. And so, yeah, the casting is amazing. Like that scene at the end at the lake works, I think, partly because it's written pretty well but also because you have Michelle Williams and Leonardo DiCaprio Mm -hmm. like who can really sell these emotions like Mm -hmm. you really believe them I love Leonardo DiCaprio just about everybody in this movie like when they popped up I was like I forgot Elias (laughs) Gotis is in this yes it's it's, I mean it's it's stacked it is stacked (laughs) it really is Haley makes a brief appearance I know and it's funny because these people like these A or B list actors will pop up like an hour and a half into the movie just for a scene mm-hmm. or two. Mm-hmm. And like, they just, they, it, and that says something I think about wanting to be a part of a project that I think kind of mm-hmm. elevates a project and wanting to work with, of course, Ezzy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think it might be a little long for me. Like, I think there's maybe, it's a little, yeah, yeah they could have shaved off like yeah. 15 minutes and it would have felt a lot tighter, but I think so too. At, yeah. at two hours and 20 minutes, it's a bit, it's a bit much. Is it better than the, you know, to steal a bit from our, sister podcast halloweenies <laughs> is it better than the irishman who is i still haven't I, seen the irishman i can't do it i, I, need, I, I don't either. have the mental energy and i like unions um yeah, yeah. I, I, what was i gonna say i think that i mean it's part of it feeling so self-indulgent i think it's you know i, I don't i don't mean to say self-indulgent i just meant to say indulgent um yeah it, mm-hmm. is, it is an indulgent movie on every level and the length is part of that but I, I don't know. I, I ended I just ended up really liking it. So I can't yeah. even knock it oh, for that. <laughs> like, I do too. I'm trying to look up right now where this fits in in Scorsese's timeline of movies. Like is how was this the movie he did right after The Departed? I where, feel like you know, it was, just, but I'm not sure. He had just won his his first Oscar. I know The Departed was before yeah. this. This was twenty ten. Yeah. I think The Departed is like 2006, 2007. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he had done like a documentary, but it's his first feature film. And, you know, it's coming off his like lone Oscar win, which still blows my mind right. that like he has one Oscar. So it was definitely him saying, I am going to basically do whatever I want at this point. And you're not, you know, he gets mm-hmm. to indulge himself a little bit. And I love it. Like, I, there's so much that I really like about this. I'm not a huge fan of noirs, mostly just because I haven't seen a lot of them. Um, mm-hmm. But I love the feel of this. I love the, um, 
the kind of creepiness. I think my big problem with it is that while I find it a really kind of positive view of therapy, if even like kind of in dated systems, you know, I find like most of the doctors really empathetic. And I think there's kind of a contrast between some of them that I find really interesting. I feel like it kind of traffics in a lot of harmful stereotypes while not actually putting those forth, but also not really intentionally subverting them. Like, I Mm. think we're supposed to be afraid of this movie because, oh, asylums are scary, you know? And while I don't think the movie itself is doing that, that's the teeny tiny little red flag it raises. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing for this movie, but that's the uncomfortableness that I feel there, Mm. you know? I think that's deliberate, though, because I think that he's trying to tell this story in the style of like a 1950s conspiratorial America. Mm -hmm. And he's not really setting out to subvert any tropes. Mm -hmm. He's set out to really lean into those tropes. And that depiction, like I don't, I very rarely, like when I watch a movie that has a lot of heavy mental health connotations in it, I don't necessarily watch it for those reasons. And like, ah, is this really an accurate depiction unless Mm -hmm. they're purporting that that's what they want to be Mm -hmm. um and here i just felt like this was him less concerned about leaning into mental health stereotypes and more what would be on the mind of a person that day like if this movie was made in 1954 what would be the attitude towards mental health and psychiatric wards and paranoia, because this is a movie that's really steeped in paranoia. I was paranoia thinking we with, could have done this yeah. for paranoia. We could have done yeah. this for PTSD. Yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of mad grief. that we didn't do it for paranoia. Uh, yeah, for grief. I yeah, mean, right. it's got all of it. I mean, like I was said in like, the comments on our on our outline at one point, this is like a smorgasbord of mental health issues. Yeah. I think, yeah. really I do is. think it's playing with those expectations of, yeah. of what you expect in a movie like this mm-hmm. or in a movie about an asylum. I think like if you compare it to, which I know we probably will talk about at some point, or we can just talk about it now um if you compare it to other portrayals of psych wards and you know how evil the evil doctors in a psych ward or something along those lines this completely subverts all those expectations by making the the doctors actually well-intentioned whether whether Mm -hmm. or not it, it it fully interrogates those ideas is another story but i you know i think that it it definitely is it's subverting your expectations in that one very specific way (laughs) where you're like, these people are going to be evil. And then, Oh, they're not, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the thing because there is a lot that I really love about what it says about mental health. And I am kind of like, I don't know how, how well it's going to hold up to scrutiny as far as like the DSM five goes. But, um, I really, I feel like this is a really kind of nuanced look at mental health. I think it's just doing slightly to the side of what I want it to do. It's doing another thing. And that's not, again, that's, that's just my own reaction to it. That's not a knock against what the movie is doing. Cause I do think I really enjoy it. I think it's fun. I think it's creepy. I think Mm -hmm. it looks great. So Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Like I would say it doesn't have any accuracy when it comes to how it portrays a lot of (laughs) what they're ascribing onto Teddy, but what it does have is a lot of like empathy towards. Mm -hmm. So it might not get the particulars right. Like it would not hold up under any scrutiny um, in terms of like accurately depicting. But what it does have, what it does do is like, it's really empathetic. And there's a quote in this movie. And I think when we get to talk about the end that I really like um, that I'll kind of hold off off for later. Yeah, There are a couple of quotes that I'm like, Ooh, 
Um, all right, so now let's talk about residential treatment. And I think today is going to be a little more of a historical overview. And in our next episode on this topic, we're going to talk a little bit more about modern residential treatment. So one thing that's kind of important to note when we talk about the history of inpatient mental health care, especially early on, what we're really talking about, and this was described by Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman in his book, Shrinks, the Untold Story of Psychiatry. It's a system where, quote, the purposes of earliest mental institutions were was not treatment or care, but rather the enforced segregation of inmates from society. Lunatic asylums, as they came to be known shortly after they sprung up in the mid-1700s, just kind of gathered up anyone that exhibited moderate to severe signs of mental illness, and they warehoused them away from the world at large with little to no regard for the individual's dignity or respect. Mental illness wasn't seen by society at the time as something that deserved empathy and care. Instead, if a person suffered from mental illness, they were considered somehow lacking, and they were often labeled as social deviants. Having mental illness was considered a sort of divine punishment for one's own moral transgressions. To the surprise of no one listening to this show, it was often the lower class and the poor that were hauled off and relegated to psychiatric wards through law enforcement and the court systems. Yeah, if you were wealthy, you were either kept in the attic or uh, sent to uh, get better air in the, in the Swiss Alps or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm partially right. making this up, but yes, it's, all, it's always... <laughs> no, that's pretty <laughs> much true. It's always the poor that pay the, the highest price. Yeah. Yep. Um, part of the reasons the horrific conditions at asylums come to light are through the work of early investigative journalists that hear rumblings about the abuses going on inside the walls. One of them, uh, Nellie Bly, she gets herself committed in 1887 to the notorious Blackwell Island Insane Asylum in New York. And she writes of this experience in a book, Ten Days in the Madhouse, which if you want, you can actually grab for free on the Kindle Ooh. store or if you have a scrib, uh, scribbed subscription. It's an easy read, like 130 pages. You can actually blow through it in about really? an hour. Um, yeah, it's a... It's it's almost like a penny dreadful, mm-hmm. but true. Um, it's pretty great. So she details how easy it is to get tossed inside of one of these hospitals. Like literally all she did was like kind of like look. She went to like a boarding house for single women and would just kind of stare in the distance and mumble to herself or not eat when everybody else was eating. And all of a sudden it was like something's wrong mm-hmm. with this woman. And she was hauled off to court, and they were sympathetic towards her, but they put her in a mental mm. asylum. So she, what she does in this book is she details like the physical and psychological cruelty that the patients had to endure on a daily basis. So this is like a very brief section of it. Um, chapter 11 in the bath. After a few more songs, and we were told to go with Miss Group. We were taken into a cold, wet bathroom, and I was ordered to undress. Did I protest? Well, I never grew so earnest in my life when I tried to beg off. They said if I did not, they would use force, and that it would not be very gentle. At this, I noticed one of the craziest women in the ward standing by the filled bathtub with a large, discolored rag in her hand. She was chattering away to herself and chuckling in a manner which seemed to me fiendish. I knew now what was to be done with me. I shivered. They began to undress me, and 
One by one, they pulled off my clothes. At last, everything was gone excepting one garment. I will not remove it, I said vehemently, but they took it off. I gave one glance at the group of patients gathered at the door watching the scene, and I jumped into the bathtub with more energy than grace. The water was ice cold, and I began to protest. How useless it all was. I begged at least that the patients be made to go away, but was ordered to shut up. The crazy woman began to scrub me. I can find no other word that will express it but scrubbing. That's like one brief section that kind of shows what they were put through. One of the really chilling takeaways of this book is Bly describes being removed from one hospital and transferred to Blackwell. And once she was transferred, she stopped putting up any pretense that she was insane and just started to act like her normal everyday self. And rather than like this being convincing to the doctors and the attendants that she's of right mind, the behavior convinced them that she was worse off than they originally feared because they're like, oh, she won't admit there's something wrong with her. Therefore, she's far more gone. Early forms of treatment included hydrotherapy, where patients would uh, would be either submerged in icy water for hours at a time, or they would have their they basically would be bound up in heavy blankets and then submerge into that water so that they couldn't move at all. Uh, mechanical restraints such as straight jackets, manacles, and wristlets are often used. Early theories hold that demonic possession causes insanity. And these treatments were used as a way to kind of shock the demon out of the patient's system. Once you move towards like the early forms of psychiatric treatment, there's this idea that the body and the mind are tied together. Uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush is considered by some the father of American psychiatry. He feels that bodily fluids are the keys to cure mental health. He's not someone we ever studied. <laughs> a lot of this is tied up in those like humoral theories and yes. like all that shit. And it's uh, Mensana and Caporisano, yeah. sound mind and a healthy body bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, in her book, Madness, an American History of Mental Illness and Treatment, Mary DeYoung wrote that Rush and his charges purged, blistered, vomited, and bled his patients as a way to cure them. Others go so far as to remove parts of the body. Dr. Henry Cotton, the head of New Jersey's Trenton State Hospital for more than two decades until 1930, thought infections led to mental illness. So he would remove a patient's tonsils, thinking that it would get in through the saliva. When that didn't work, he would remove parts of the stomach, the intestines, the gallbladder, and the colon, feeling that those are the areas of the body that mental illness made its way into the body and then lingered. You know, I like to solve problems by just guessing and, you know, um, you just mm-hmm. you just take things away in, until the problem goes away. And mm-hmm. if you just remove every single part of the body, right. eventually they will stop screaming. Cured. Right. Yeah. Cured. <laughs> problem solved. Right. Yeah. And that th- kind of leads back into what Mike was talking about is that it's it's a problem rather than a person. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, there, and I've got yeah. more to say about that when we talk about this movie, but yeah. So we're going to fast forward a bit to the 1930s where insulin shock treatment was brought to the U.S. by German neurologist Manfred Siegel. Patients would be injected with a massive dose. And again, nothing ever went wrong by having like German <laughs> scientists in the 1930s oh, experiment yeah. no. on people. Like, really, no, nothing, nothing at all. No problems. As, a, as a Jew, I can attest to this. <laughs> oh my goodness. Mm. Patients would be injected with a massive dose of insulin, which would often send them into a temporary coma. 
Despite some risky side effects, such as, such as amnesia mm. and death, by the early 40s, it's estimated about 72% of the country's 300 or so asylums are using this risky treatment. Around this time, electrical shock therapy is introduced under the mistaken assumption that schizophrenia and epilepsy can't be coexisting conditions. The earliest forms of this was done by injecting patients with a drug called metrazole, which could induce convulsions so violent that two out of every five patients would experience fractures in their vertebrae. By the 1950s, this form of treatment was discontinued in treating depression and schizophrenia, and by 1982, the Federal Drug Administration revokes metrazole's approval. Electroshock therapy is kind of what takes its place, where you would just jolt people. I think, honestly, in movies, as we most often see depicted, when we see poor treatment of persons, we see electrical shock therapy mm -hmm. done. And it, it's interesting because it, it does have a clinical value even to this day. Um, it's mm -hmm. just that it was used, yeah. well, I mean, you know, not as much perhaps as you see depicted in film, although it was used, I mean, even in, mm -hmm. in the 60s, I know that's, isn't that what Sylvia Plath writes about in the bell jar? And my, my grandmother mm -hmm. actually always yeah. spoke about being institutionalized in the 60s, and she wouldn't say anything more mm -hmm. other than that. It was the worst experience of her life, and they used you know, electric electric shock therapy on her, but she didn't elaborate any mm -hmm. further than that. But it was something that happened and was yeah. not always um, used judiciously. Yeah. And mm -hmm. there are benefits to it. I mean, there are benefits to some, um, but I think the way it was used, especially early on, was not done with any sort of care or regard. Right. Or patients. necessarily yeah. a scientific method behind it. It's like they've sort yeah, of, you know, like exactly. with a lot of these things, you accidentally realize that they do have, that certain elements of it will have clinical value. But uh, yeah. yeah. And I feel like with a lot of it now, it's like, okay, well, this one didn't work. Turn the volume up. Try it again. Let's try it again. Whereas yeah. like what I found with a lot of therapy is, especially some of the stuff I'm doing, is it's like a treatment and then a processing of the treatment or a treatment and then like let's talk through yeah. what this brought up and I feel like that's what's missing here because they're really just trying to like yeah make people normal you know quote unquote normal exactly and again like the kind of like psychoanalytic analytic theory that would have been pervasive at this time is not going to be available yeah. to everybody either so you're you're just you're really you're treating mental illness as if it's some sort of moral discrepancy in the person mm -hmm. yeah because i feel like without that element i can give grace for like we tried treatments like for a while people thought leeches were the way to go like there's medicine is a study and you grow mm -hmm. in your knowledge over time i think it's just really that undesirables kind of element of it that i think is really insidious you know yeah it just purely wasn't understood yeah. there was a lot of ignorance Agreed. uh going into mm -hmm. this all right so finally and kind of for relevancy to the purposes of today's movie we see the rise of lobotomizing patients by the mid-40s. Dr. Walter Freeman uses them because he believes that neurological disorders can be cured by damaging the neural connections that exist in the prefrontal cortex of the brain. His feeling was if you damage this area, you remove the unwanted behaviors. And while that's somewhat true, the unfortunate side effects of the procedure means that a person's memory and personality are severely stunted. And I just found this article um, on statnew.com um, from freelance writer Mona Gable. It's called Not All There, My Mother's Lobotomy. Just a little excerpt from it. Like her mother basically was lobotomized right after giving birth to this woman. 
Um, so she never really knew her mother, and it details a lot of what it was like to grow up with her. Um, but I found this page, this passage at, towards the end of it really like poignant. I finally began to grieve for my mother, the young woman she had been, and for losing her. By then, she lived alone in San Diego, in an apartment complex where Freddie, who was her assistant, had an apartment too. She still did things that made me nuts. I could call her umpteen times before I visited, and she would still forget we had a lunch date. Answer the door in her housecoat. She would call me in the middle of the night, oblivious of the time. What you doing? She'd chirp. Sleeping, Mom, I'd say. She'd send me birthday cards on the wrong date, signing them with quotation marks. Lovingly, Mom. But when I was good and patient, I was able to catch myself. It's not her fault. Sometimes I wonder whether the surgeons made the right choice to save my mother's life when she was left so debilitated after her lobotomy. I wonder if she had her surgery today, if she had woke, if she would have woken up whole and intact. So I found that was like a really poignant, like just article about what it was like to live with someone or what someone had to live with once they underwent this procedure and how it really damaged yeah. them. Yeah, I, I also recommend the book. Um, it's called My Lobotomy by Howard Tully. He was actually one of Walter mm-hmm. Freeman's youngest lobotomy patients. Um, he was lobotomized when he was 12 years old by Walter Freeman mm-hmm. himself, who is just a complete madman, <laughs> um, really, mm-hmm. if you if you read his story. Oh. Uh, and, and, that, and that book... Um, is very very moving uh and it, yeah. he i think he wrote it with someone but it, he he was you know it's it, when you lobotomize someone at a certain age like they do have brain development just in not in a quote normal fashion um so mm-hmm. he, he's a very interesting his story is very interesting i'll just say that and it's it's one of the books that my my father mm. had in his collection and i ended up reading after my father passed yeah i got i found a couple of articles that i'll link about it I don't know if I can really speak that well to it because I don't necessarily understand a whole lot about it. But the big takeaway I got, some people were actually helped by it. Some people did improve. But I think, yeah, Walter Freeman, I think, was just like a big old narcissist who wanted to like really be Mm. known for this procedure. Mm -hmm. Like I was reading a couple of cases where he was like doing the surgery and it wasn't necessarily a lobotomy, but he read that or he found that he didn't need to do it. But since he was already in there, he just kind of was like, okay, yeah, and I'll just screw around with their brain. Mm -hmm. Like, I think he was doing some of them without a license he and wasn't think, yeah like, he wasn't a he was never he was not a trained brain surgeon uh, at all yeah. i think yeah, i'm not i think he was a doctor but not a surgeon um in any mm-hmm. in any capacity and so he just and he realized because it was such an easy and inexpensive procedure to perform by just doing the transorbital lobotomy yeah last podcast has a really good series on it and i know a few other yeah. podcasts have covered it as well so i do recommend that because you know they they make it uh, as always they make the pill pill easier to swallow with their comedy in my opinion Mm -hmm. but um yeah i recommend that series and that book um for a little little bit more of a personal view into it it's upsetting you know it's especially like as a person with a mental illness now like i think shit what would they have done i am i am constantly Mm -hmm. because i'm obsessed with medical history and read a lot of these books on this and and also like psychiatric history and (laughs) my takeaway from everything that i've read is i was so lucky to be born when i was even being born in the Uh 80s like if you were born a few decades before that like what my grandmother experienced as someone who had mental illness and as an adult in the 1960s she experienced she was brutalized in many ways by the mental health system to the point where she refused to talk about it and I always really want to know I wish I had 
been able to speak to her more about it to get more of her experiences but like i mean <laughs> at any other time in history i would have been burned as a witch uh yep. lobotomized thrown into a a room and left to to waste away i think um it's so important to reflect on the history of these exactly. things because my god we've come a long way and it's a little yeah. disturbing that we had to that we had mm-hmm. to come such a long way right yeah and i think a lot of this is just designed as a system symptoms of a system that views one type of person as normal Mm -hmm. and everything else is othered and there are really problematic or really troubling ways that the society has tried to either put people back into the lane or just kind of get them out of the way you know Mm -hmm. so because i mean the word hysteria hysterectomy right so those it's those ovaries making you crazy yeah i mean the key i think we just said there is like kind of pushing people aside like if there's a problem that it's immediately like swept under the rug. Um, and that's why early on, like really from the mid 1700s up until the turn of the 20th century, there wasn't a lot of palliative care that was done for persons. Like they were, it was literally just a warehouse of persons that were thrown in. Like it wasn't seen as a medical condition. It was seen as a moral uh-huh. failure. Can you say, what does palliative care mean? Just getting treatment. I mean, really just getting medicine and treatment and care and support okay. um and getting treated with empathy as opposed to yeah Just stuck in a room and right. i may be misusing that word but that's what sprung to okay. my head yeah. yeah yeah and maybe that can kind of transition us into um the the talking about the specific movie because that was one of the things that really stood out when we decided yeah. to do this i hadn't seen this movie probably since maybe in about eight or nine years. And I was, I think I just had American horror story asylum in my head Mm -hmm. and I was really worried about how this was going to hold up and actually found that it held up pretty well. Like I didn't find any kind of really harmful characterization of people with disabilities or people with mental health in the way that I think American horror story asylum does. And I find really off putting. Well, I I mean, I was just going to say they show a range of people who are all very human in this context mm-hmm. and i think that again it's part of subverting uh, your expectations is you know they even have the leo dicaprio character in the in the first part of the movie when he is still firmly a detective and has just arrived on the island and you know he says something to ben kingsley's character like you know so these these guys you know are the, the, the patients here they have killed people and they're like in almost all cases yes he's like well then i don't really give a shit about how great they feel or whatever i can't remember the exact line but he's like all you know and the irony being that he is himself a patient there Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know and they show that one woman who's like relative you know and he's like oh you know don't take this the wrong way but you seem pretty normal for being here and she's like well we all have our dark days you know Mm -hmm. i mean they they definitely like go out of their way to to not characterize everyone as like a gibbering maniac you know yeah and they don't i feel like they don't lean on physical deformities too Mm -hmm. which is like a shorthand for mental illness which i think a lot of yeah um more sensational shows Ryan absolutely Murphy, uh, yeah <laughs> <Ryan> <laughs> Murphy. Like, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah i mean i think that's a difference like that's pretty much what ryan murphy goes for is like mm-hmm. shock yes. value and i feel like i i watch the beginning of every season <laughs> of that show and by the end of like the second episode uh, i'm like yeah, ah, i'm so pretty much done seen. i watched the first yeah. few seasons all the way through but then like the third or fourth season on i'm like okay nope yep nope i'm, mm-hmm. I'm tapping right. out <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I get a little further in depending on who's in them. Yeah, and the Asylum season in particular, like, it was throwing so many things against mm-hmm. the wall. It was like, 
mental health abuse and aliens and serial killers <laughs> and Anne Frank. Like so much shit. It just that jumps the thrown. shark like five times. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. And not you're right. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, and I find that they don't really do that. Like one of the things that kind of came out in my mind as I was watching it was talking about people being patients versus inmates. You know, which I think is kind of something. Like when I look at the mm-hmm. two like main doctors or authority figures in the show, like I see it uh, in this movie. There's Dr. Cowley, who, being a Kingsley, there's Ben Kingsley and there's Max von Sydow, and they kind of represent kind of opposing views, whereas Ben Kingsley, I'm sorry, Sir Ben Kingsley really wants to, like, understand and really try to use some more modern approaches of treating these patients as individuals um, and human beings, and Max von Sydow's like, well, yeah, we got to chain them up, I don't care if they drown, like, they're dangerous, and we just have to keep them away, and that, I feel like, is kind of what you were talking about, Mike, about like, we just want to get them out of the way, you know, rather than what I think a lot of therapy right. now is, is trying to understand and trying to help people understand their own thought processes, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I think that's one of the key scenes in the movie. Cause it's the only scene that you see that starts out, not from Teddy's point of view. Like he walks into that, that boardroom scene as mm-hmm. it's going mm-hmm. on. So it's something that's not staged for his eyes. And they're discussing, I think, like Dr. Kali says, like, there are 24 patients that could potentially die if you shackle them right now. Like, are you prepared to live with that? And everybody else is like, and it's not just Max von Snydow. It's like everybody on the board is like, absolutely, Mm -hmm. we're like, who cares? So I think that what you see with his portrayal, it's very much like I thought of like Carl Rogers and this idea of like treating patients with what we call universal positive regard where you're meeting a person at their level you're completely understanding of their humanity and the idea of that form of treatment and it can be a little bit infuriating to clients sometimes is that like you're not providing answers to a client because you're never going to be an expert on them more than they would be of Mm -hmm. themselves so it can sometimes like they'll ask what do you think i should do and as a therapists who practice that kind of treatment you'll say oh, i really get the sense that you would like me to tell you what you want to do right now but unfortunately it's really up for you to discover that but i can really sense that you want and i remember when i was in grad school learning about car rogers like i would try it when my wife would dm me i would like with like oh, what should i do about my mom right now and i'm like i really get the sense that she's frustrated she's like Cut the Carl Rogers bullshit out. <laughs> it just like, I felt like Kingsley's yeah. character was really going down that road of like accepting that, like he was, like you said, like they're not inmates, they are patients. Mm-hmm. He wants to help them. Yeah. Well, and there's one moment that he says too, which I kind of found a little bit striking, um, was he said, yes, they have done terrible things. I'm paraphrasing. My job is to treat them, mm. not their victims, which I think I could be read as cold. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think he's really looking at the person. And for somebody with a mental illness, like they deserve to have that, too, mm-hmm. you know, which I found one of the things I yeah. really felt kind of comforted by and surprised by was just the language I think Ben Kingsley used in a lot of places to speak about people with mental illnesses and really kind of you could tell he really sees them mm-hmm. as human beings, you know? Yeah. And I again, it's like. Mm-hmm. You, when you're watching that scene in the first half of the movie, if you don't know what's coming, you're like, he's he's trying way too hard. He's covering up the fact mm-hmm. that he's torturing them all in a basement or something. Um, but really, that it turns out to be 
he is as exactly as he presents himself. He he really is. And him and Dr. Sheehan, who turns out, you know, to be Chuck and vice versa, um, are these sort of progressive trailblazers in the face of, I mean, they, this was supposed to be 1954. So it's coming right mm. on the tails of the like, you know, heyday of the lobotomy and all these sort of, you know, brutal treatments. Um, it really was a turning point in the field of men- of mental health and, and residential treatment, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, and his whole thing that he's doing, as it turns out, is, is implementing this completely, as he calls it, progressive, like, or like radical role play, <laughs> uh, which mm-hmm. I, which really made me laugh uh, in order to avoid having his patient lobotomized so he's really willing yeah. to go to the ends of the earth yeah. to prevent that you know last case scenario and you know he said at some point he's like well some people like the new schools like psychiatric medications and the old school prefers psychosurgery but i'm really i'm looking to something else i think those are last resorts you know um yeah so he re- you know it's, it's interesting it's like it's i've never really seen a, a, a psychiatrist portrayed this way let alone in in a genre film before yeah and I found that really yeah. refreshing, too, because he's not saying medicine is bad. We should never use these treatments. He's saying, let's try something else first before we do something that's going to physically alter yeah. someone's body, possibly forever, which I think is mm-hmm. is a really healthy approach, you know, because there's I was just gonna say, I don't want to sound like I'm saying don't take psychiatric no, medication because yeah. <laughs> I, I think like, no, of course, not. you know, because um, I've gotten personally gotten benefit out of that. But I've also had some negative side effects. And that, I think that's mm-hmm. just a really individual decision yeah. that everybody needs to make with a psychiatrist or therapist, you know. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I know that I'm not a prescriber. And I talk to a lot of my patients about whether or not it would be and then we talk about the pros and the cons of it. Mm-hmm. My take on on using like psychotropic medication is in a lot of cases it can provide you a boost like it might get you kind of like the starting point of where you need to go mm-hmm. in terms of like getting like feeling better but it needs it's not in and of itself like a magical cure all like you still need to attack the root of like any sort of cognitive distortions or oh. behaviors that you're experiencing and kind of find new ways in order to kind of look at your worldview and kind of look at your per- your own kind of trying to think of the best way to phrase this kind of look at your own personal worldview and how you see yourself and the world around you mm-hmm. unless you also treat that as well then like medication on its own isn't going to get you there mm-hmm. but in some cases like you need that medication to get that process exactly. started yeah and i think what's what's interesting is how he how Kali dismisses medication by saying like, well, that's a new thing. You give them a pill, you put them in a corner and, you know, it changes their behavior, but at least the bad behaviors go away. He says, I would much rather talk to a person. I would rather meet them on their level, treat them like a human being. And if you can do that, then you're, you know, you're going to have a much more positive result, which is something I do believe. Mm-hmm. I think that when he said that, I'm like, that rings very true to my experiences working as a therapist. Yeah. Well, and even in like, I'm, I've mentioned before, I'm doing brain spotting and that is not any, that's still kind of a talk thing, but it, it's like a treatment where I like move my eyes around. Mm-hmm. But even then I do one week of brain spotting session and then I have another week with my therapist to unpack everything. And then we do another mm-hmm. week. So like you, you still, I feel like a lot of mental health recovery is awareness, you know, and like you being aware of the yeah. way your mental illness is affecting the way you act and understand things. And I think just trying to treat the problem, quote unquote, 
leaves that element out, you know. Right. Which is something I think we see with Teddy. Like, it is really important to them that he says out loud what he, the realization that he has come to, that he really understands mm-hmm. this. Cause I think they recognize, like, if he doesn't fully understand this, I mean, I'm assuming all of this, I'm living in the world of the movie where all of this is real and like mm-hmm. medically accurate. Like, if he does not admit this to himself, it's all going to revert back and he's going to fall back into the same patterns, right. you know? Mm-hmm. Well, so shall we talk about Teddy a little bit? Um, yeah. Sure. Yeah, I think, well, what really interests me about Teddy is, obviously, as we've stated, this is not a realistic portrayal of what happens to someone when experiencing a trauma. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's it's definitely played to be over the top um, and, and to serve the narrative of this kind of mystery thriller. Mm-hmm. However, he does endure a series of very significant traumas that that really deeply infect him starting with being a soldier seeing the death camps and seeing you know witnessing the the horrors of world war ii and what the nazis did which also is like a theme that recurs that other characters are saying but we as we learn mm-hmm. they're kind of speaking through teddy's mind right like that you know Mm -hmm. the world isn't what it used to be we dropped the atom bomb there's death camps yada yada so he's having his whole sense of reality fractured abroad and then comes home to face his wife that he truly loves but he cannot seem to accept that she is having you know a a mental break basically that she is having Mm -hmm. some severe mental health issues that and she's really crying out for help and so what when she ends up killing their children and he ends up killing her it's like he just can't it's all just too much for him well i think what i found fascinating on this rewatch is how how his experience in the liberation of dachau was a red herring how it doesn't really factor in to the trauma that put him into the facility i disagree with that but I mean, it's just, okay. I mean, Tell I just me. think that like, if you, I, I think it sort of sets the stage for what he's experiencing at home. By the time he, by the time he comes home from war, he is so traumatized that he's unable to really process what's going on with his wife. I think that that, you know, mm-hmm. it's like he is drinking heavily. He is um, dealing with the fact that he killed a bunch of, you know, whether or not he killed him in the, in the way that he saw. I mean, he's witnessing that level of death. I mean, a lot of people came home from the war with those traumas and had legitimate PTSD as a result of it. So I think that it's, yeah, Mm -hmm. obviously the thing with his wife is what like really sends him into the institution or to be institutionalized. But I think that it really primed the pump for him to um, not be able to cope or face the reality of what he was, what what his wife was experiencing. Mm -hmm. So it's like this series of denials that lead to this ultimate denial. And I just, you know, um, yeah. I guess I read it different in that, you see the brief moment when he comes home. Like I read him not accepting his wife's mental illness as something where he just didn't accept mental illness as a cause of something being a problem. And the quote that he says at the end of the, at the end of the movie, when he actually accepts what happens to her. So he says about his wife after she tried to kill herself the first time Dolores told me that she had an insect living inside her brain. She could feel it clicking across her skull, just pulling the wires, just for fun. She told me that. She told me that, but I didn't listen. I loved her so much. That he just saw this woman that he loved, and I think that's a really beautiful 
a really beautiful description of like what it can feel like to have mental illness where it feels like just something is pulling at your brain and pulling it in directions that you just don't want it mm-hmm. to go in. But he was unable to kind of accept that about her. You see him when he comes home from work and he's like jolly. He seems to be like in good spirits. And it was implied when they talk about like he wasn't the alcoholic, like she was drinking heavily. And that led to her like suicidal ideation and then like her attempt to kill herself. Um, but he just couldn't accept this. So that's why I thought like the events at, at the concentration camp were more of like a red herring. And I'm not saying that they completely unaffected him. He It was about a decade on from that experience and he was able to come home and start a family, work his way up to being a marshal that could mm-hmm. travel. I mean, I think both of those things can be true. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I don't think you're wrong. I think that I I think they're just reading it in very slightly different ways, you know. But I mean, I think you're completely Mm -hmm. right about the interpretation of his not being able to understand his wife's mental mental illness because Mm -hmm. also it was an era in which that was not really well understood and he wasn't really prepared, you know. It's like he was a military guy, you know. It's like uh, who, who just... At a, at a cop you know mm-hmm. he's like i solve problems by attacking them he's a man of violence yeah. you know all that yeah. kind of stuff and yeah. not you know this, this was not his forte but i i do think that the traumas endured during the war um were relevant mm-hmm. <laughs> they're just they weren't the yeah. like the trigger point yeah. that sent him over the right. edge and that's fair and i think that's fair because it lingers so much on yeah. them and it's so mm-hmm. beautifully shot like the papers flying around right. and just the way that he kept that the he kept harking back to it and the and the and the whole like the horrors of no. war in the world cracking up and being such a theme that they kept hitting over and over with all the different characters i just kept yeah. saying it was like you know it's kind of like the it's another moment of like the monster being the metaphor and the metaphor being the monster it's just this mm-hmm. other th- other th- like mm-hmm. literary theme almost layered into this movie again elevating it from mm-hmm. a, st- a standard b movie to something a little bit more um or, you know, a little bit more highbrow, or I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but, you know, a little little more impactful, I guess. Well, and one of the things that I've kind of noticed in my own trauma and trying to dig up stuff is that it is so interwoven with just so many different parts of my life. Like, I'll go through a brain spotting thing, and we'll, like, kind of go down to as far as we can get into a feeling, and it's, like, pulling stuff up from college and pulling stuff up from childhood and then something from high school, and it's just, like, it's all enmeshed, and I don't necessarily think we could separate it, and I actually really like the way he shot this whereas he's having these flashbacks to Dachau and then suddenly it's the girl it's suddenly it's his daughter and Mm -hmm. then it's and I love how Mm -hmm. it kind of shows how it's a lot of it is the feeling rather than the actual event you know because I mean nobody remembers everything the way a camera would remember like we just that's not the way our memories work and I love I love the way that it is portrayed here Mm -hmm. and I think it kind of like I read it I think Laura I hadn't really thought about how it connected to his experience with Dachau so I'm glad you said that because I was reading it I think very singularly because I think this is just what my mind is drawn to like resistance to therapy resistance to any kind of problem I can't put a cast on and fix quote unquote you know Mm -hmm. and I also think there's an element of like he is dealing with a lot of his own mental issues from the war and a lot of times like I know I can get through my own day and I can manage my own self but trying to extend that empathy to someone else when I feel like so much of my energy is going into managing myself is just really really hard Mm -hmm. and I 
that's one of the things that is so heartbreaking about this movie. It's just the guilt and the responsibility I think he feels yeah. for that. That Mike, that quote you pulled up about the the insect clicking across her brain, that has stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Like that's the one mm-hmm. thing about this movie that I did really remember. Because mm-hmm. I do yeah. think I think it's a really accurate and scary like description of what it could feel like, you know. Mm-hmm. But Yeah. And I do think that whole sequence with with him and the flashing back to her and that whole scene is just so beautifully executed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just mm. that, that, you know, that's where the movie takes, you know, the turn from silliness to like actually hitting you in the gut, you know? And yeah. it's mm-hmm. it's really good. I really like that about this movie. I, I think it sort of, you know, catches you off guard. Yeah. Well, I have a, a couple of questions. Um, so I found this article from Psychology Today called Shutter Island Separating Fact from Fiction. And he was talking about uh, Jeremy Kleiman, P-S-Y dot D dot. Psy-D. Psy-D, okay. So it's just, yeah, it just means yeah. you basically you get a doctorate of psychology. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, he was talking about Teddy having, starting with post-traumatic stress disorder, but then shifting into delusional disorder, which his, I'm quoting him saying, which is a much less common psychiatric condition. A psychologist might note that Teddy suffers from a mixed type. His mind generates themes of grandiosity. I'm going to uncover a mass conspiracy and persecution. I'm going to be prevented from ever leaving this island. And I think, like, I I kind of brought that up because I want us to talk a little bit about, we've mentioned this isn't exactly real. Like, this is not the way these things would manifest. So I wonder if we can talk about that just a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we talked, we said earlier, like in the quote that you just read, are sort of the hallmarks of uh, like paranoia, paranoid schizophrenia, mm-hmm. things that we we discussed in our episodes, both on paranoia and on schizophrenia, which are to me not quite in keeping with someone who is having sort of a dissociative episode after a trauma, mm-hmm. which is I think probably right. more. So it's like if he if this really did happen to him and he really had and he just couldn't handle reality anymore and ended up institutionalized, he would probably be experiencing more PTSD like symptoms, more dissociation. I don't know that it would go to this level of what what would be classified as like full blown delusions, hallucinations. Mm hmm. That's that strikes me as not quite right, but obviously yeah. a richer narrative. <laughs> yeah, the movie doesn't work if yeah. if he's not experiencing. He's not completely oblivious. Does that sound right to you, Mike? I, I completely agree with you. Yeah, I think that like, in you and I think I'm not sure if it was you or Janet asked like, is this really feasible? And you know, like it's a slightly more than zero percent <laughs> chance, but not mm-hmm. really much. I read like what he's experiencing here is like is kind of what we would think of with like multiple personality or what we now call like disassociative mm-hmm. identity mm-hmm. disorder where what he's done is he's created this whole other persona not only for himself but he's created like a persona of this patient that is somehow gone missing and has ascribed like the crimes of his wife onto um this patient Rachel even though that's not exactly how DID works and honestly that's one of the disorders that is often mischaracterized and is used mm-hmm. in a way that like when people plead the insanity defense they're often like looking at like something like disassociative disorder because they're like how could I be guilty of this thing that I don't mm-hmm. even know that I did um, and it's by no means accurate in this movie but it's kind of feels like what yeah. they're going for 
It's a real yeah. mishmash. I mean, it really, you have paranoia, you have post-traumatic stress disorder, and you have dissociative disorder, all kind of in this, like, big genre pie, basically. Yeah, they took a sampler platter and just mixed it all together and said, he, he's crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And to be fair, like, to give Corsese's credit, he doesn't ever say it's one diagnosis. Like, mm-hmm. they, they present right. it as just really a vague kind of delusion like Mm -hmm. i go ahead i was gonna say is that pretty much the same case in the novel you said it was pretty faithful to to the novel itself Mm -hmm. it's very faithful to the novel. i think the one change is the end where scorsese adds the line about teddy really knowing Mm -hmm. that he's cured like he's kind of willingly to going to the um, lobotomy right so mm-hmm. yeah. which is something i want to talk about and too lahane doesn't have that and lahane has said like eh, i just thought that was like another temporary fix for him but i really appreciate the movies i liked it I much too. more yeah Be- yeah because I, 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 it really says like he he does know but he's just he's done you know it's kind of like a a, a little bit yeah. of a suicide kind of like what his wife asks him to do at the right. end of it you know Mm-hmm. Yeah, which kind of leads into maybe my soapbox about this these this men of violence thing that I don't know if I've really fully baked yet. It's still kind of living in my head as like a feeling right now, so I need to kind of process it a little bit. But just this feeling of like it's too hard to do this work, so I'm just going to go into this delusion. And when the warden, um, Ted Levine, who just perfect perfect casting for this role like it's such an impact and i just fucking love it um but when he says men of violence and like my violence is greater than yours and that's just such this like toxic masculinity like strength over everything else and um any kind of like mental illness is would be a weakness which would put you which means i won and so fuck you you know Mm -hmm. and i feel like we see like I feel like there's a lot more to Teddy going on here, but I see a lot of like really resistance to therapy and resisting to any any kind of like interrogation of his thought processes that might be perceived as weakness to anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that and like so the ending like is he choosing to just kill his consciousness rather than do this hard work of therapy because it's just so hard, you know? And I think there. Are, so many men i don't i hate to gender stereotype but it just there are so many men that i feel like they they can't handle any kind of like emotions you know they well, can't express their emotions or they don't want to it is know? a str- i mean you know it, it's it's not necessarily individual men so much as the collective men or like the idea you yes. know the way that men are socialized and there is the lineage like mike said earlier of mental illness being seen as a moral failing and that mm-hmm. idea didn't just ever that idea never really went away in our culture and mm-hmm. in western culture in general mm-hmm. um i think it got subverted and you know and sublimated but and 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 you really a lot of that masculine identity i mean i've yeah even to this day i've met plenty of of that men who are still really buying into that hyper masculine patriarchal toxic masculinity it's like of course i'm not going to go to therapy i'm not going to that that's you know i can just suck it up a stiff upper lip right. my way through these these feelings rather than actually confront them and even if they don't say it that literally it's like it's yeah. you know people who come from more conservative homes more religious backgrounds it is often that is whether 
explicitly or implicitly the way they've been socialized. So I think it's yeah. totally fair to say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't want to feel like I'm placing judgment on Teddy because he has been through a horrific tragedy, several, you know, and I think, I don't know. I don't know what I would do in that situation, but I think there's an element of um, norms that are playing into it, you know, mm-hmm. from Cheers. Well, there's a clear, there's a clear divide in what the two camps feel is the right course of action when it comes to dealing with Teddy. There is the Dr. Sheen and Dr. Kali camp, which feels that he can be treated and cured, or at least made to accept what he's done and what's happened to him, and then he can move on from there. Because again, like, I think Kali says, like, we have to cure you this weekend, which even if Teddy fully takes responsibility for what's happened to him, it's not like he's magically cured. There's still the long mm-hmm, process mm-hmm. of accepting. And then there is the camp of the warden and Dr. Nering who see this as a problem where it's like very much ingrained in Teddy. And we need to take out that part of him mm-hmm. that lives there. It can't be fixed. It can only be destroyed. And I think what you see with the warden in particular you know, it's revealed that Teddy is the most violent patient they have. That, you know, he's nearly killed George Noyce. He beat him so severely. And that was the last straw. Like, that wasn't the inciting incident that caused this role play to happen. It was one in a line of many incidents that had caused it to happen. So when the warden is talking to him about the violence that lives within him, Mm -hmm. he's seen this in Teddy time and time again. And he's almost like going back to like a, a Neanderthal, you know, killer be killed view of mankind at that point. And that's why he's like, if I wanted to chew your eyeball out right now, could you, you know, could you even stop me? And he's like, well, why don't you give it a try? He's like, that's a boy. Like he recognizes like, you know, for all of this talk about this role play, for all of this talk about we're going to cure you and we're going to indulge in this fantasy Deep down as a person, I know the core of who you mm-hmm. are right now. And as he's saying, and he even says, he's like, look, if we, if we took away all the niceties of society and I'm the only thing standing between you and sustenance, you're going to find a way to get through me or you're mm-hmm. going to die. And I think there is some truth to that. I mean, I think there is at the end of the day, like we're, if society completely breaks down. Yeah, that's just uh, that's just being human, you know. I, yeah. <laughs> I think we've seen that plenty yeah. this last year for sure. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Right. So I think we see a lot of that. I, the end of this movie, I see it less about whether or not Teddy can accept therapy and move on but i think that he he real he's taken responsibility for what he's done he understands that at the end of the day he's responsible for killing his wife directly and he's indirectly responsible for the death of his children because he was unable to help his wife um and i think that's mm-hmm. what eats at him more than kill than him killing his wife but because he couldn't believe her There's nothing he can do. He can't go back and Mm -hmm. fix that moment. And he would much, he feels that he deserves to be punished in that moment, that it's too much to live with that knowledge. And it's not about whether or not he wants therapy. It's whether or not he can live with the knowledge of what he did in that moment. And I I find that like really, 
I found the end of the movie like really powerful in that regard. Mm-hmm. I did too. Me too. I mean, as much as like I want to be, you know, team therapy, and you can, you can. I hate to say cure, but you can change who you are, and you can learn to accept you these horrific grow. things. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I found that that was a really moving, and it might not be the most mental health positive aspect <laughs> of the movie, yeah. but as a narrative yeah. device, it's a really yeah. kind of beautiful ending to a movie. It makes it like a beautiful tragedy, and, and it works yeah. for keeping it in the genre realm, you know, and mm-hmm. not like a, dr- a pure drama realm. You know, if right. it was like then yeah. we had an, a montage where he like learns to deal with it and become a better man and then goes back and reintegrates into society, then we're in a, a high drama, you know, kind of right. kind of movie, you know. Well, and it's honest, too, yeah. you mm-hmm. know. Like, there, there are a lot of times where I, like, kind of question – like, is it really that bad? Can't I just go back to pretending everything's fine? You mm-hmm. know, like the allure of that is really, really powerful. Um, and I feel like I'm also looking at Teddy saying, you should keep working on this from the 2020 therapies that we have. Right. Like, what's the next step for him? They're going to do like if it took like this entire weekend, which side note, like we could have a whole conversation about whether this is ethical for the other patients involved in this right. whole ruse, you know, like if this is what it took to get him to this realization, like what's the next step? Are we just mm-hmm. going to keep going and going and going and going? And while I do think there's value in that, there's also like, I understand him making that decision, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he basically so. gets to experience a form of oblivion in, in a way that, yeah. uh, even though, although I don't know that that's necessarily what he's going to get with mm-hmm. when you're lobotomized. But, right. uh, and speaking of the ethics, do we, do we want to talk about that at all? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I know you had said, like, is this experiment ethical? Mm-hmm. My feeling on it is that, you know, Again, we're in in a sort of campy genre film, so it's so over the top that it was a little hard for me to say. But I think to the point of like you're pulling all these other patients into it, you're putting people at danger. You, you uh, you're letting him roam the grounds. You see, you see him uh, stick a needle in Max von Sydow, and then you know who knows what else he kind of could have <laughs> done to himself or others in the process of this role play. Right, that's kind of a problem. Yeah. yeah, the the role play kind of gets out of hand because they don't have enough. They can't control the whole experiment. There are too many variables. Like right. Teddy mm-hmm. could have killed himself scaling down the side of that cliff, right? <laughs> right. That was what one of that's what jumped out on me in the rewatch. I would say it's probably the lesser of two evils when it come when it comes to like what his options and potential outcomes are. That it's mm-hmm. the lesser of two evils, and it's a movie. I yeah, mean, that's yeah. you know. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's it's like I, I, that's what I mean. Like, by it's like it's a little. I, I think for the sake of the podcast and for just as a thought experiment, it's kind of fun to say mm-hmm. is it ethical, but also mm-hmm. it's like no, but it's yeah. also like it's just such yeah. a it's we're in crazy land here. Um, right? Yeah, uh, the movie doesn't work if you don't do it. Like, they can't ship in a bunch of faux patients mm-hmm. and ship all the rest. But I was thinking, like, because he was really bugging me as much as I love Leonardo DiCaprio. Like, I found him really like aggressive and condescending, like in the first 30, 45 minutes. And I think mm-hmm. that's intentional. I think that's yeah. who this character, this man of violence character is supposed to be. But I also could imagine like being one of the other patients there and this yeah. person who is already very violent and just 
beat up one of your friend patients, like how triggering that might be to see this person like waving a pretend gun and like questioning you like aggressively. And that's just, that's one of the things that stuck out to me. It's like, it's just like, we see this all from just one of the things I think makes this such a really good film on rewatch is like, we're really kind of approaching this from inside Teddy's mind, which I think, um, I found a quote from, again, from that Shutter Island separating fact versus fiction, which I thought was really interesting. He talked about the narrative structure, um, and he says, everything seems melodramatic as nothing is as w- is as it seems. Random moments are punctuated with inexplicably tense, intense emotions. Goals constantly shift as disorganization triumphs. To watch this film is to become physically exhausted and cognitively frustrated. But everything makes perfect sense in retrospect once we realize we've entered the mind of a delusional patient with unblinking vividness, a risky but worthwhile ambition. Which again, I think is kind of on the premise that this is a real psychological condition, which we've already talked about. But I think this movie is about Teddy. It's not about the other patients at the mm-hmm. asylum. So mm-hmm. I can kind of give it a little yeah. grace for that. Yeah. But. It's a, it's a, you forgive it for what it is. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I don't think that this isn't going to happen. Like no. nobody's. <laughs> no. I'm trying this. to think who he actually interacts with. It's an actual patient. There's the two patients during the interview, mm-hmm. but and the, there's, the, um, Rachel uh, is there's... actually a nurse. Yeah, Um, Mm because she's in in that last scene, and then Rachel number two is a figment of his imagination. And there's the Mm -hmm. guy that he beat up, um, noise, noise, who's behind the bars, but who's who's behind bars. But then there's that guy again. This who knows if this is a figment. The guy that was like running around shirtless, going like tag, you're it. That he puts in a a chokehold. But there's you know, a guard that he attacks. Yeah, there's the the guard with uh, you know he says like how badly did you hurt him? Uh, the the whole thing too is it's unclear to me is like did that storm actually happen? Because yeah. you know that added an element of chaos. Basically, while yeah. he's running around in the middle of this storm, he could have theoretically run into anyone and done anything. Mm-hmm. So it's just the whole thing is just so. It's I mean that's what I mean. It's like it's just so crazy. <laughs> it's all it's, it's so over yes. the top. I don't see how this would ever. You know, the closest thing to this is like that Bat Child documentary about the little boy who wanted to be Batman. So, you know, but that was a much more controlled. That was a much more controlled environment. Yes. Yeah. So, and I I do think that like Ruffalo's Dr. Sheen, when he's, he's able to, you see him like put his hands on Teddy a lot and just be able to kind of restrain him a bit and also check in with him constantly mm-hmm. you know with his like you okay boss um it's almost like I don't know Laura have you ever played the game Bioshock uh I I don't know that I've ever actually played it I'm familiar okay. with it though there's like a phrase in that game that's used over and over like would you kindly and it's mm-hmm. kind of like a trigger in that game it's pretty cool when it's revealed like I almost was waiting for like that phrase like you okay boss to be like some sort of like triggering <laughs> phrase for him for yeah it's like a manchurian happen. a manchurian right. uh, candidate thing yeah but like... it's it's just him like checking in to make sure his patient is actually okay right mm-hmm. it's, i mean the first time he says it it made me go hmm because it's like the boss mm-hmm. feels so yeah. mysterious forced. to me yeah and yeah. forced yeah. and like <laughs> 
But yeah. Which, uh, side yeah. note, this might be the movie I fell in love with Mark Ruffalo because sure. he just, it's, he's great, but his character in this movie is just yeah. so, like, that's the kind of therapist you want, you know? Right. That's like, if, somebody well, who yeah. will go through it with you, you know? Totally. Like, yeah, I, I, I developed a crush on that character and Mark Ruffalo while watching this because he's just got those big brown eyes and he seems so understanding. And you're like, yeah, mm-hmm. I can, I would like you to just take me in your arms and give me a hug and tell me it's all going to be okay mm-hmm. and then have sex with me. I mean, I mean, oops. I mean, I'm just saying, if you're listening, yeah, yeah, and Hulk out. If you're listening, Mark Ruffalo, I'm also a Bernie supporter and I'm single. Mm. Mark Ruffalo, come on. Anyway, now I'm getting, this is beside the point. Email us at psychoipod at gmail.com. Does he he wear any sweaters in the movie? I can't remember. (laughs) I don't think he does, but man, I think. He wears that suit very well. The, yes, the mo- he does. That opening scene, I was like, no matter what, I'm going to enjoy watching them talk to each other in like sort of yeah. mid-century, old-timey voices wearing little short ties and funny yep. little hats. <laughs> yeah. I will say, I, my favorite line, one of my favorite lines of the movie is when Ben Kingsley is like, you blew up my car. And I was really fond of that car. <laughs> like, I love how just nonplussed yeah. he is. Mm-hmm. I know. And that speaks, I think, to his empathy, too. Like, because no. he could have been, like, Max von Sydow, I think, would have lost his shit right. if it had been his car. And I think that, but the Ben Kingsley and uh, Mark Ruffalo, I think, makes such a great pair in this totally. movie. Just, like, really kind of anchors the movie in this, like, warm center. Even mm-hmm. when you're kind of maybe there, maybe Kingsley is a bad guy. Like, it never quite crosses that line until mm-hmm. I'm not happy to see him, you know? Totally. I do think one of the things, like, to your point about the, how ethical the, in how out of control the experiment is, is there are specific points where they're almost trying to goad Teddy into violence, like the mm-hmm. scene after like Teddy comes back with the warden and Kingsley is like, you know, when he's asking for his partner, he's like, what partner? You came here alone. Yeah, like, what the that hell was the point felt, of that? <laughs> right. Yeah. It, well, it yeah. was to, again, plant those seeds of doubt in his, in his mind mm-hmm. and make him uh, just buy into those delusions that like, you know, have him like feed into those even more that is like, wait a minute, they're lying to me right now. I know they're lying to me right now. Yeah. It's to try to push that to its logical conclusion, Mm -hmm. which I feel. And it's again, like that, what you were saying, Mike, like your patients or your clients wanting you to tell them the answer, you know, Mm -hmm. um, which I think I I that's one of those narrative choices where I'm like maybe he just we want to have this reveal at the lighthouse I think that's part of it too mm-hmm. but I don't know yeah I just wrote this thing on I said I was going to stop talking about this but I wrote this thing on the Piketty tapes and I've actually read it twice with both of mm-hmm. my therapists in therapy now and it's like woven all of like if I look at my therapy as like chapters you know this is like a summation of the first chapter and if she had told me all of this stuff I wouldn't have internalized it and I wouldn't have processed it so I think like while we didn't have some kind of big Truman Show's type simulation like it was really helpful for me for her to let me just get there on my own you know Mm -hmm. which I think we see kind of a magnified scale here Mm -hmm. but and it was really really empowering and she was like I'm really proud of you and it was nice it was a good day (laughs) was there anything else we want to talk about with this movie Shutter Island I said that real weird. Is there anything else we want to mention before we move on? I don't think so. Okay. I think that'll be um, good. Awesome. All right. So 
normally we talk about other mental health topics. Um, this one is like, I think, Laura, you said a smorgasbord of <laughs> mental health topics. Like there's, yeah, because we're talking about treatment in general, we're just going to kind of skip that section. Yep. But let's go to other movies we see this in. So now let's talk about other movies we see residential treatment represented in. We're not going to dig into them, but in case you're looking for more representations of this on film, here are some you might want to check out or maybe avoid because some of the ones on my list are ones that I do not recommend. <laughs> yes. Um, and before we do that, I also want to say the next film we're going to talk about on the topic of residential treatment is Unsane. Yes. With Claire Foy, I believe, right? Yeah, Claire Foy. And yeah. it's Linklater, right? That made it. It's uh, Steve Soderbergh. Soderbergh. Ah. And I think it's I just always want to say, yes, it was all shot on iPhones. I always yeah. like Ooh. flip their names as directors. Mm. Cool. Interesting. That's very I, interesting. I don't know why, but I, you know, those are two that I, I know the difference. Uh, anyway, mm-hmm. syllable count, maybe. Mm, yes, I'm gonna <laughs> go with that. That sounds right. Yeah, they yeah. they shot the whole thing on iPhone, and I don't know if that works in its favor, but I do look forward to talking about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I haven't seen it, so I'm excited because it's been on my list for a while. Um, but some other ones that I had on my list, we already said American Horror Story Asylum. I would not recommend that one. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Girl Interrupted, um, Cropsy. Mm, and is a documentary, right? It is a documentary, yeah. yeah, about a serial killer, I think. I Mike, you ha- I saw you have this on your list, so you may know a little bit more yeah. about this. Yeah. We, we screened it in Boston. Like It was literally screened it the night before my wife went into the hospital to give birth to oh, our wow. daughter, oh. so it has a special place. Yeah. It's mostly a documentary, but there are definitely some, like, docudrama elements to it as well mm-hmm. um yeah yeah it's an interesting it, one it, yeah it depicts um some of the real actually it's Geraldo rivera as the investigative journalist yes, that yes. blows the lid off this really terrible facility in new jersey and like how the persons are all just let out at that point and not really accounted for which was that like reagan era like mass shuttering of a lot of these mm-hmm. institutions which is was a, yeah. a whole other side historical sidebar we could go down <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. yep yeah um i also i th- we see um electroshock therapy in homeland not too much but it mm-hmm. is there mm-hmm. and then if you've seen the latest season of the crown i don't want to spoil anything but there's an episode about some members of the royal family who may have had mental illnesses and were just yeah hidden away so which it's the whole thing that's what i was talking about about you know put them in the attic Mm -hmm. it's like rosemary yeah yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. exactly yeah which i think she had a a botched lobotomy i believe is Mm -hmm. a lot of where her um more serious disabilities came from Mm -hmm. all right so yeah those are mine i um had renfield's treatment and bram stoker's dracula yes Mm -hmm down as well <laughs> for a very um, over-the-top depiction but probably yeah. maybe not so far from reality nonetheless <laughs> yeah right. considering the time period mm-hmm. and then also shot in massachusetts and you don't really see treatment but you hear it um session nine mm-hmm. which is one of my favorite movies and we should cover that at some point in terms of like using delusions as a means to kind of cover up for like what you're not able to face mm-hmm. when you're able to interesting absolutely and i yeah i concur with all of the above this is not about residential treatment but this movie 
and I can't think of another time we'll ever talk about this movie, so I'm going to talk about it now. So it's a, uh, reminded me structurally and aesthetically a lot of Angel Heart, which is a horror neo-noir that's set in the 50s with Mickey Rourke. Um, that movie has some issues, I think, but it, I really enjoy it. And it's like, if you, it's very, there's some really weird similarities between that and this, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, but it's all like, devil occult stuff so i can't really ever see it functioning well on this podcast unless it was a comfort horror episode so yeah and now it's time for an uplifting moment this is when we share any coping or grounding techniques and any self-care we've been using recently uh coping and grounding techniques is a little tips trips tricks, mantras, and practices that help us get through hard days or hard moments. And self-care is anything we do to make us feel good or feel better. Um, And I have been listening to a lot of audiobooks recently. Towards the end of tax season, I get to this point where, like, my mind just has a really hard time digesting podcasts with more than one voice, you know? And I don't know what that – I don't know. I try – I have to find, like – I am on a podcast with two other wonderful voices. But (laughs) it just, like – I don't know, something about it I need – like a linear story that someone's telling me so I've been listening to Cujo which I had to stop once they got in the car (laughs) and um and then I started The Shining today and it just it's like a warm blanket you know just Mm -hmm. kind of I know the story so well and it's just it's been really nice so yeah that's mine is audiobooks Well, I've also been listening to audiobooks mostly per your recommendations because I got that Scribd um, subscription. So I just finished listening to <laughs> it. Yeah, and I'm I just started listening to a book that I've been meaning to read for like half my life, but uh, it's called Geek Love by Catherine Dunn. Oh, so that I love that. Yeah, book. I've never actually read it. Um, so I'm like two chapters in, and I'm like, "Yep, this is what I signed up for." So <laughs> <laughs> looking forward to more of that. And I also took this next few days off work because I haven't really taken any actual time off work recently mm-hmm. because working from home it all kind of blurs together. And even mm-hmm. if you're not feeling well, it's like I think I took I took half of the day um, the day after my second shot because of side effects. But like, so I just took some extended time off and. When I try to make the most of that, we'll see what happens. So that's my self care wow. right now. Yay. Yeah, we I as we record this, like tomorrow morning, I get up and it's my first day back to work after a week off because it was our April break in the public schools. And oh god, I'm dreading it. <laughs> it's been like this really wonderful kind of nine days off where I did a ton around the yard this week like just basically like repainted the deck dug up a lot of bad patches of grass and like put down new seed and did some mulching and we like have some home pro like big home projects we're gonna do um and it was just like a nice week to get a lot of stuff done but at the same time like watch a bunch of movies or catch up on some shows i wanted to watch on the couch and like really like is low low pressure and low stakes of a week is we've had in a super long time and i definitely felt like i needed it because um and this is my fourth day of recording shows in four days so i've been guesting and yeah it's been like a lot going on um but i find this like really soothing Mm -hmm. although now i'm at the point where i'm like i'm ready to sleep (laughs) (laughs) but i definitely needed to recharge the batteries and then we have like 30 37 days and school days until 
summer break. So I'm hoping to just power through the next seven weeks and then run out. Literally will knock kindergartners out of my way. <laughs> skipping to my car on the last day of school, yelling, we're out. You're going to George Costanza them out of the way. <laughs> oh my God. I totally will. Absolutely. Nice. Ah, oh, the end is in sight. Yeah. Well, we want to hear from you. Have you ever been part of an elaborate therapy ruse? What is your favorite Leo or Mark Ruffalo role? Or what is your current self-care? Um, if you're a teacher, how many days do you have left? Um, <laughs> and, you know, I always enjoy hearing that because it, it brings me back. Um, you can share all of these things and more with us by following us at Pod on all the socials and looking out for the prompts. And you can also join our Facebook group, the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group. It's a private and moderated group where we can share about topics we talk about in episodes, other things in the mental health world, or just anything else that's on your mind. Um, it's a really great and supportive group. And also, just a heads up, if you um, ask to be part of the group and you don't answer the membership question, we might think you're a bot. So it's really easy. Easy and there's not a right or wrong answer that just kind of proves right. shows us that you want to kind of engage with this conversation um right. and we really do want to try to keep this a safe place um, for people to yep. share so just pop in your favorite movie real quick you could also email us at psychwaypod at gmail.com if you'd like to share privately. Um, we would like to hear from you on the topic of residential treatment too. So please email or DM us if you feel comfortable sharing. We would like to read some of your messages as part of our next episode, but we will not share anything you don't give us um, express permission to share. And even if you don't feel comfortable with us reading your letter or your thoughts, hearing your perspective helps inform our own perspectives on it and kind of helps shape our ideas around this topic so you know all information is good so no pressure at all don't feel like you have to share if you don't want to um but yeah look out for that prompt and our homework question for the week is what is your favorite martin scorsese directed film and kind of along those lines like we kind of went back and forth about what the question the homework question should be like we want the homework question to be kind of lighter and fun because it just yeah. feels awkward to ask about like super right. personal stuff but if you would like to share please feel free to do so you know if you want to do that or like my favorite is goodfellas and here's this time i was in a psych ward like if you want to do that <laughs> exactly then... <laughs> interested in both those answers it's just Not. like have you ever been institutionalized doesn't quite look quite right. so snappy on our uh, little... yeah on the on the ins yeah. on the ig on the gram yeah yeah there was a video game based on this movie. really really you know that makes sense because yeah, i was saying PC. that it felt like a video game a little bit so yeah. mm -hmm. you have your guide through the different mm -hmm. sections she yeah. says as a person who knows very little about video games <laughs> Um, it's like super it's based on super mario brothers and you have like teddy jumping over <laughs> patients like dun, dun, just dun. like and instead of shooting fireballs at them he's like shooting prozac <laughs> i don't know like it's all right we've gone off the rails yep. <laughs> Um, so what are we watching next? Well, we've already mentioned that we're watching Unsane as our next film on the topic of residential treatment. But before that, we have another comfort horror episode. And remember, these are just kind of one-offs. They're not necessarily comfort horror on the theme of residential treatment. Um, but I'm really excited for the next movie because it's one I haven't seen yet. Um, Terry Menard from Gaily Dreadful and the Scarred for Life podcast is joining us, yay, to talk about The Blob. Woo! 
Yay. Yes. This movie is yes. so good. And it's the 19... 19- Go ahead. Let's <laughs> say, should we say it together? <laughs> yes, we should. It's the, the, it's the 1988 version. <laughs> the Chuck Russell directed, super it's fun. It's really fun. Staple of my this childhood. This is like a, exactly perfect for a comfort horror, in my opinion. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, I'm excited. Mm-hmm. I haven't. I know very, very little about the Blob other than the Simpsons. Episode I mean, it's the Blob. So this will be. <laughs> This will be your first time watch. Yeah, for any blob related properties. Oh, I mean, wow. I gotta tell you, definitely it's a, a little blob. <laughs> a blob. Yeah, it is it's a blob. All in the title. <laughs> definitely a little, a little jealous because you get to experience this movie for the first time. <laughs> I'm sorry, did you say um, jealous or jello? Je- je- jell- jealous. Jealous. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a blob. And jealous, yeah, it's a blob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. So make sure you check that out for next week. We are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. You can find us here and there along with some other fantastic pods and lots of really cool culture writing by going to consequence.net. So make sure to check that out. Uh, Mike, where can we find you and what you got coming up? Sure. So you can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian over on Twitter. You can also find my other show, The Pod and the Pendulum. Everywhere that you get your podcasts, um, as this show goes to air, we should be just crossing our two-year anniversary, so really excited about that, and um, we are in the middle of our coverage of the Evil Dead franchise, and we've just planned out the next year's worth of movies, so we're going pretty strong. So find me in those places, The Pod and The Pendulum. Nice. Everywhere you get podcasts. And I've seen a couple of the movies that you're planning for next year. I mean, I haven't seen. I've seen the list of yep. some of them, and it looks really mm-hmm. exciting. So You're on board for one, right? I one. am. I'm excited. Excellent. <laughs> uh, Laura, where I, bleh, Laura, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Underalls, U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S, much like the government issue sackcloth onesie that you're mandated to wear (laughs) on the prison island that you find yourself on you don't know why you don't remember why but boy are Mm. they on your uh genitals that's at underalls (laughs) u-n-d-e-r-l-l-s on twitter um and uh yeah that's that's it uh, you, you can also i'm sometimes on the losers club and halloweenies as well mostly losers club these days I haven't been on halloweenies in a hot minute that's where you can find me yep <laughs> yay <laughs> <laughs> and you can find me at jim Ferratu on all of the socials um you can also find me on the losers club and we've got some really really exciting things coming up um, including an episode in May about Stephen King and addiction and recovery, which I'm really excited about. And you can also find me on the Strong Female Antagonist blog. And I'm still working through feelings about talking about that. So <laughs> thank you for everyone's grace and support. But I'm excited about that. And I should have one out um, kind of along the lines of Mother's Day for May. Nice. Um, I, sh- I just got to write Is it. it mommy first. Dearest? It is Mommy Dearest. Yes. yes. Very excited. <laughs> yeah, so that's where you can find me. And that's our episode on Shutter Island. Thank you so much for joining us for this one. This was, I, I really had fun revisiting this movie and talking about it. Yep. Um, please make sure to take care of yourselves and each other. And with that, let's sign off. We came here to chew bubblegum and take care of ourselves. And we're, we're all out of bubblegum. Bubble
Consequence Podcast Network.